Hello and welcome back to Cooking the Books with Jilly Smith, the podcast which takes us through four food moments from the books of our favourite A-list of food writers. It's about life through the prism of food. And this week I'm with Sam and Sam Clark, the husband and wife team behind Morrow, to talk about 25 years of amazing British food culture and with the publication of their latest book, Morrow Easy, the legacy and influence of cookbooks. Our restaurant's given us a fantastic and fascinating career. And I think now it's time really to to get out there and going to schools and reaching out to communities. I mean, I think that's the way because there's no one really better to talk with conviction and passion and understanding than, than a chef, really. Sam and Sam are among the most influential chefs in modern British cuisine, bringing delicious, rustic, Moorish cooking to Britain back in the 1990s. We met on the morning after the Queen had died, while the media was having a field day discussing who we are at the end of the Elizabethan era. I asked them to take me back to when Britain was just waking up to how food, like music and fashion, was about much more than what we were eating. I think um, there were signs that there was a real demand um, for delicious food. And, um, and there was also people could afford delicious food. And that, that, sort, of, that sort of combination. Um, and so it was starting to change that it wasn't just for the elite. Because London had always had you know, great restaurants, but it was really just for the, you know, the very rich. And then there was this change where, of which we were part of, where, like the Eagle, wanted to have great food. They, I think there was a realisation with people travelling that in other countries, great food wasn't just for the, for the rich and it was for everybody. And I think um, that's um, what was becoming apparent. People were demanding great food, but not at great prices and um, or anyway they could afford more i mean i my take on it mm. is that there were these three groups of storytellers there was the bbc in wood lane white city who were kind of having all their meetings at 192 and Kensington Place <laughs> and Sally Clark's. There was the group in Groucho's who were going to Alistair Little. <laughs> and later, they were at the Observer and the Guardian, whose local pub was the yes. Eagle. Yes. Those people were the storytellers, creating an idea of a new birth of the cool. You know, it was the mm, next big mm, thing. Mm. So, yes, you're right about accessibility to food. I, I have to say for certain people, uh, it was still people with an expense account, perhaps, or, mm, you know, mm. cool young things. It wasn't for the, for the masses. That took it. Well, that still hasn't happened. We've got a, a very uh, dualistic kind of food culture, haven't we, where we got food poverty and food insecurity mm. in the six richest country in the world and we've got this extraordinarily rich and vibrant food culture that represents cultures from all over the world so that's the kind of trajectory i'd love to kind of take you back to the 1990s at the eagle and sort of earwig on some of the kind of stories that you were talking to with those journalists at the guardian and the observer people were literally writing the story while they were eating your food how aware (laughs) were you of that I mean, yes, every place where we worked had a story. So, you know, the River Cafe, it was, you know, Rose Grey living with her family, um, growing up in Tuscany and Ruthie having new influence of Richard Rogers' mother and family. And then, um, and the Eagle was the story of um, David Eyre, um, 
you know, being brought up in Mozambique and the sort of Portuguese influence. I mean, with us, obviously, journalists love a story. And with us, it was how we travelled in our camper van um, and we drove to the Sahara Desert um, researching recipes, trying to get the authentic flavours. And so, you know, they're, they're, I think there was this... People appreciated that link and that sort of authenticity in the food that was being created. Um, and, they, and the journalists, as you said, who are in these different areas of London being inspired, you know, like, like latched on and like those stories as well. Yeah, and also, I mean, the Eagle Pub was, was the first gastro pub of its kind. So, you know, it was very accessible. It was informal. It was bustling. It had wonderful energy. It was um, rustic flavours. You know, it was just vibrant. It was alive in every way. And, and that's why there were queues around the block. Yeah. And this was before TV chefs like Jamie Oliver and Nigella had sold us a whole new idea of of who we are through what we eat. I mean, it was only a few years before that people were not really travelling. It was really with the birth of Thatcherism that young people were exploring the world. They had a bit more money. Cheap flights had enabled that. So your food was kind of like encouraging people to travel, but also reminding them of the wide open road. (laughs) How aware were you of what it was doing for other people? Well, I mean, we've always liked the line that, you know, um, food has the ability to transport you to a different place um, in the same way that Music does. I mean, it's so evocative. Um, and, and so we like the idea that you could open, you know, a, a recipe book or eat at our restaurant and really be transported into a little souk and get those same sort of flavours or, you know, or or being in Seville and a little tapas bar and, and just, you know, um, and it'll and it be able to transport people to a different place and a different time. And, um, and that was really exciting. And I think obviously it did make people want to travel because we're so enthusiastic and we love exploring and we're adventurers really you know so so I think obviously the two went hand in hand yeah it's interesting that you use the the idea of music as well because you know that's the other thing we're very good at in Britain is making things very cool and making up new stories and we did it with music and fashion uh in the 1960s 1970s and we've we've always done it really we kind of make it up make it cool and then it becomes our story, doesn't it? You know, compared with, yes. I mean, last time we met was at the British Library and we were talking about 13th century Andalusian food culture, which hasn't really changed, um, which is quite extraordinary, isn't it? Because, uh, you know, it is the instability of our food culture that allows us to, to change mm. and move and kind of, you know, be very exactly. fluid, which is a joy. So, you know, let's talk about some of the other storytellers who are coming in in terms of the chefs. You've mentioned Ruth Rogers and, and Rose Gray. Um, Peter Gordon uh, was a huge influence at, at that yes. time. There were lots of people bringing their travels to mm. pubs and restaurants and really exploding that whole restaurant scene in London. Did you kind of meet up with each other and chat about it all? You know, it was, what was the kind of the feel of this kind of cool group of people who were literally changing the way we ate? I think we were all in our, slightly in our bubbles. You know, there, obviously there was the River Cafe camp and then there was the, the sort of Michelin star French camp and then there was the um, St John's camp and there was the Peter Gordon camp and um, and they all... You know, we all had our, you know, different mantras and our different takes on things. Super friendly whenever we did get the chance to meet up with them. But, you know, 
working in a restaurant, you're sort of head down and, you know, there, day and night. Um, and so, you know, there's not a lot of chance for social, you know, too much social stuff. So, But what it was doing was kind of opening Britain to ideas that great stories came from the world. We were much more outward looking than perhaps France or Spain or Italy were at that time. And that is to our credit. And, you know, one of the things I've been thinking about as I've been listening to this massive storytelling about, you know, who we are in relation to, you know, the end of the Elizabethan era is how outward looking we are and where we are in terms of our relationship with the world. Before we go into your food moments, which are very much set in your Spain, where are we as a nation in terms of our food? Bearing in mind the cost of living crisis, bearing in mind the climate crisis, bearing in mind the new prime minister and, you know, this kind of conservative approach to to other cultures. Who are we? Well, I think we are. There's definitely the haves and have nots. There's definitely the people who embrace exotic and different flavours and people who literally do eat the same food as they've always eaten day in, day out. Sort of, you know, chicken on a Saturday, fish on a Friday and um, and uh, sausages and bacon. I mean, it's just sort of... And I think there is a bit of a north-south divide as well. I think, um, generally speaking, people like simpler food um, in, in, in the north of England. And, um, but there's also the, you know, the, the availability of the food. I mean, here, because London is the great melting pot, um, you know, we, we literally can get everything within a 10-minute walk. Um, so it's, part, it's a combination of um, demand, but also um, it's, it's just harder for people to nip out in, in, in uh, Lancashire and get pomegranate molasses, <laughs> whatever it might be. Although you can get anything online if you wanted, of course, and there are fan- fantastic chefs up in Lancashire. I know, that is, that, is the big, that is the big change. And that and that push yeah. towards local seasonal food, you know, which started with one nine two perhaps, mm. and and Sally Clark, you know, maybe a food culture has a great role to play in the way that we change the way that we think about how we live. I hope, um, you know, certainly with the climate crisis, there has been such a massive change in in the last thirty years in the way that we eat and the the food that we decide to 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 buy for for whatever reason to be cool to for flavor or or for whatever that is the influence of people like you is phenomenal what can we do to kind of encourage that sort of storytelling so that everyone starts to eat more locally and seasonally and reduce waste and all the things that we know that the Spanish have always been doing as part of their cooking. And you'll talk about that in your food moments about back of the fridge cooking, about using leftovers, about, you know, picking food from the land and using it seasonally because that reduces waste. You know, what what do you think about the role of the chef in, in changing the way that we consume? Well, I mean, I mean, we're always um, mad on foraging and seasonality and things. I mean, I, if people go on walks with us, we can point, 20 different things that you can eat on a walk. Um, and we like to think we, you know, we do excite people about the possibilities and also what parts of the plant you can eat and all of those sort of things, things which usually do get thrown away. Um, so, I mean, also now we're, we're, we're realising that, that it's where people are talking about the n- nutrient density of things. 
Um, so basically, I'm afraid to say that the vegetables we buy in supermarkets probably have half the nutritional value as they did 40 years ago. And but by the same token, if you eat wild forage things, they're just so packed with these incredible vitamins and minerals that you don't get in conventional vegetables and fruit. Um, that um, all of that sort of thing is really exciting, and and I think if people realise that, they they will become stronger have better health and less need for medicines and drugs to keep them healthy. Totally. I, I mean, you know, the word foraging kind of sounds terribly sort of middle class, and, but it's actually blackberry picking. Yeah, exactly. Isn't it? At this time yeah. of year. I mean, but if you, ha- if you have a handful of blackberries, what they possess is just off the chart from a mineral and vitamin point of view. And this is exactly what Moorish food is. It's exactly what uh, most Mediterranean food is all about. Local people picking, buying and cooking local food. Take us back to when you went on that famous campervan trip when you were on your honeymoon back in the 90s uh, and you went to, through the Mediterranean and to the Middle East and saw people picking their equivalent of black currants in season and it changed your life. So those people who haven't heard your story about the camper van, take us back. Why did you choose to go where you went? Well, we um, didn't want to cook Italian food um, because we thought we couldn't really do it um, justice um, after working at the cafe for so long. And we wanted to be... And that's the River Cafe. That's the River Cafe. So we wanted to forge our own way. Um, <clears throat> I travelled a lot in Pakistan and um, I was very interested because I got Pakistani friends and I'd got, um, I was you know, just swept away with the sort of romance of the culture and the mosques and the music and everything. And then when we came um, back to um, Europe, when I came back to Europe and travelled in Spain, I just was amazed by the similarities in the architecture um, from Lahore in Pakistan to Cordoba in Spain and all of the great cities of Andalusia. And um, and then, you know, with a bit of research, we realised there was this wonderful link between the food um, of the East and, and, and Spain, um, the Moors being in Spain for such a long time. So we called it the Saffron Cinnamon Link. Um, and we just wanted to explore that. And we loved that sort of exotic side of, of Mediterranean cookery. Um, and, um, and we loved that cultural influence um, that the East had. And so we drove um, through Spain and um, crossed over Gibraltar to... Tangier and Morocco and then we headed south um, to the Sahara and we we travelled in the Sahara um, and you know met Bedouin tribes people and ate in the desert and it was just we were full of awe and amazement all the wonderful things we were tasting and learning whether it be desert truffles or picking wild asparagus um, in the in the Sierras and um, it just took our imagination um, and it was very exciting, wasn't it? Mm. I mean, we were like sponges. We were, we were so eager to learn. So, you know, we were about to open a restaurant in in six months' time, and and we really, really wanted to come back with kind of unusual dishes and and learn about things that, uh, you know, that we could replicate in the, in the restaurant for our customers and so we were just on this sort of high that the whole sort of three months just going from from one village to another we were lucky also that when we got back um 
a wonderful company um, called Brindisa was starting up. And so suddenly we could buy the wonderful anchovies from Ortiz and we could buy the Moorish wind-dried tuna from um, the Atlantic and all of those sort of things and the olive oil and the olives. And so it was far easier to, and the peculiar peppers and the paprika, so it was far easier to get that authenticity because it, we, the timing was good as this co- company was starting off as well. So that was sort of key. We had the ingredients to make things taste exactly how they should, which um, you need. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, I mean, it's extraordinary, isn't it? You know, sort of taking the image of blackberry picking and taking it to desert <laughs> truffles in the Sahara, it's the same thing, but it does blow <laughs> your mind. Both of them blow your mind, actually. It's, it, it's yeah. wonderful. Yeah. Let's, let's start going through some of the food moments from your new book. So this is Morrow Easy. Uh, not that it was difficult in the first place. <laughs> why? Well, I mean, publishers always want the easy version of, of something amazing. But why did you decide to do Morrow Easy? Well, I mean, originally we were going to do a Morrow 25 because Morrow is 25 this year. Uh, our publisher, you know, said, well, why don't you think about doing a Morrow Easy? And initially... I wasn't sure, but then I thought, well, actually, you know, this is a, a, a challenge to um, write in a slightly different way and, and create recipes that are no less delicious, but are kind of simpler, have simpler methods, a few less ingredients, but while still retaining all the kind of punch that the Moro flavours have. And so, actually, we really enjoyed... The exercise and um, and have kept the recipes simple um, but delicious, and, and we're happy with what we've created. And what about the cultural sort of implications of this? I mean, a lot of these foods haven't changed for well centuries, and they are to do with time um, and you know getting them locally. Taking them and making them easy and accessible is fantastic for us. But what does that do to the authenticity of where it comes from? Well, I think, um, you know, again, it's, 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 it goes back to the language of spice and the language of the ingredients. So um, a cumin in the right position or a, or a bit of um, manchego cheese with the right combination of things, suddenly that brings the whole dish together and it gives it an identity uh, uh, and it grounds it. And, um, and that, that's sort of where, where it's as simple as that. You only need one or two ingredients to give a, a recipe. It's sort of cultural and spiritual anchor, really. Yeah. I was talking to Noor from uh, Ottolenghi Test Kitchen this week and uh, she, we were talking about the cost of living crisis and she was saying, you know, there's a real opportunity now. We have so many different ideas to play with our food um, to make something like an egg on, on toast or beans on toast. I think we were talking about really delicious by borrowing an idea from somewhere else. And that's what it, you can zhuzh up anything with a little bit of cumin, can't you? So you're actually spending very little, <laughs> but you're taking the skills from all this massive sort of melting pot of ideas. This is the first food moment, Labney, sun-dried tomato, coriander and fennel seeds. So easy, really not expensive. Comes from Istanbul. Tell us about that food moment. Yes, yeah, so um, on, on one of our many trips, we were um, we visited a, um, a, a local very sort of foodie chef um, called Shemza and um, we'd been making uh, Labney in the restaurant 
right right from the beginning. So you know, making our own yogurt, we make you know um, uh, fifty liters of yogurt a day, and then some of that gets strained into the labneh cheese, and then really simply you just sort of spread it out on a plate, and then the flavors come from olive oil that um, we you know we flavor with the um, garlic and the whole coriander and fennel seeds and some finely chopped sun-dried tomatoes and a few Turkish chilli flakes. And the oil sort of goes red and the, the spices go nutty and then you just simply um, spoon that hot oil on top. It transforms it into something completely but, different. I mean, you're, before people start shouting and what? saying, that doesn't sound very simple, making 30 litres of yoghurt. No. <laughs> we, um, we, um, we mix, um, yeah. for the home cook, what's really delicious is getting some delicious uh, Greek yoghurt and mixing it with, with some uh, cream cheese. And, uh, and, that, so, and that makes this fantastic or very easy alternative to, to reducing 30 litres of milk and then adding yeah, life so culture. To come it. to that bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the problem about making labneh at home, I find, is that you put it in your J-cloth, you leave it to, to um, strain, and you lose all the yoghurt. Yes, exactly. Well, I mean, that's a case with all cheese making, isn't it? I mean, that's why cheese is quite expensive, is because yeah. you throw away an awful lot of yeah. the, the milk. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Get, use your Greek yoghurt and make it that way. Uh, putting beetroot, roasted beetroot on labneh, the most beautiful thing. Those The bleeding of those juices <laughs> into the labneh. God, that's so gorgeous. Yeah, um, fantastic, isn't it? Your second food moments. So this is uh, courgette, lemon, basil and manchego cheese. Um, I'm so making this at the weekend for friends. Um, you went for lunch in the Campo in the countryside in Andalusia and uh, had this local seasonal produce. I mean, I don't think really people are very familiar with raw courgette, but I think it's one of the nicest ways to eat. We think it's one of the nicest ways to eat courgette. And again, it was just, it was just by chance we were um, just staying with friends and they knew this sort of ramshackled little f- family restaurant, which was just some hippies, really, um, which put a shack beside their um, allotment. <laughs> and, um, and, that's what, and, they, and they gave us this raw courgette salad. So you, you, you slice the courgettes pretty thinly. I don't think they have to be actually that thin. And then you sort them, which makes them go limp and really crunchy, and then you squeeze them dry, and then dress, dress them with lemon and oil, and, um, and some either mint or basil, and then have it with some cheese on top, like manchego, or, but any sort of delicious hard cheese would do. I love, you know, aged gouders and things, and all those sort of things. Or, but we had it, obviously, we have it with um, nice aged manchego, and that's really delicious. But raw courgette is a real revelation. Um, and it's so quick and easy, because, well, you don't need a frying pan even you just sort of salt it 10 minutes squeeze it and dress it and um so we love that it's one of our favorite things in the summer and autumn yeah yeah and it's so interesting isn't it because i mean this would cost nothing especially if you were growing your own courgettes which are pretty easy to to grow as well the thing that i mean i work for the food foundation i make a podcast with young food ambassadors who you know report from the front line of food poverty and it's very difficult to talk about you know, I, I will talk to them about raw courgettes and manchego cheese, but I know what they're going to say. You know, this is almost free food. And it is the answer to the difference between heating and eating, because you're talking about raw courgettes and how to make. It's just a few little skills that make 
food really, really, really cheap and incredibly nutritious. But there's always that sort of shtick about it, isn't there, that it's terribly sort of middle class and inaccessible. But, you know, you're talking about food from the campo, food from the countryside here. How on earth can we persuade people in this country to eat everyday food really simply? I think obviously chefs are influential and and also they're they're passionate and hopefully their passion is infectious and and I think I mean speaking personally I mean I think you know we've got a responsibility now as chefs that our restaurants given us a fantastic and fascinating career and I think now it's time really to to get out there and, out. and and start you know going to schools and meeting yeah. people and going meet going yeah. reaching out to communities I mean I think that's the way because I think there's no one really better to talk with conviction and passion and understanding than than a chef really yeah. and i think um uh, as one gets older and less can harder to tread the boards in a sort of really fast and furious high pressure environment our skills probably aged chefs are better t- to teaching and educating it's probably where the energy should be switched to well absolutely and you know remember what we were talking about right at the beginning was this storytelling you know don't ever underestimate the ability of chefs to tell stories that have literally changed the way we live and eat so yeah absolutely your third food moment um scallops and alberino wine oh my goodness tell us about this one well i mean um winemakers always have an, a knack for for showing off their wines um with food i mean that's what you know that the, one of the great pleasures of life um and the combination of wine and food and um i mean a scallop is a sort of miracle of nature it's 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 a thing of great beauty uh, a prize um and and you know we're very lucky in the uk because on the west coast of scotland they just you know still got the best scallops in the world and this is sort of you could argue it's a similar geographic geography in some degrees for the atlantic and galicia and uh, where this dish comes from um but i mean they're a miracle thing i mean i think they've got to be one of the most extraordinary wonderful ingredients and um and you know people dive for them and and you know they 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 pick them off the floor and and they're very special price things anyway it's a it's a proper thing and i and so when i was in galicia i wasn't with samantha actually we were on on a wine trip in where they have lots of wonderful Albarino wines and they literally just um, had the scallop in the shell and um, put a little bit of butter and spring onion and and a drizzle of Albarino and put it in the oven. And then that was the most delicious dish you've ever eaten in your life with with a chilled Albarino. So it's sort of basically poached in a little bit of white wine and that was pretty much it. But then the, the scallop can sing and can express itself and <laughs> and just be the most delicious special raw ingredient from nature i love that it's it's the beauty is in the simplicity and in the local produce and that moment of just putting it mm. together it takes very few skills once you know how to do that you can do it forever mm. um, but it is a treat oranges though very cheap um now <laughs> take us to your house in spain you you take your staff down there and you make uh, the jams and the marmalades from the local oranges um just give us that smell of oranges <laughs> from where you live in spain so we have a, a house between seville and, and cordoba and with a little garden that has three orange trees Two Seville orange and one eating orange and a lemon tree. And 
just from those trees alone, it's enough to um, make enough marmalade for the whole year and and also enough preserved lemons for the whole year for the restaurant. So, as you say, so in sort of January, uh, we take, I don't know, 10, 15 of our, our staff and uh, we just give them a lovely time. But uh, and during the day, they're, you know, cutting and chopping uh, and slicing oranges and, and lemons and stuffing them and, and um, <laughs> all outside with the beautiful winter sun um, and just generally having a, a lovely time is, is the point. But at the end of it, you know, we, we do have our, our year's supply and then our olive oil supplier lives in the next door village so we just put it on his truck and they eventually find their way back to London. Um, so Yeah, and it's amazing. One, one, one huge lemon tree can produce enough... Um, lemon, so it's sort of buckets and buckets of these preserved lemons, which we use all through the year, which is very satisfying. <laughs> Wonderful. Wonderful. And tell us about the, the slow roast pork shoulder with orange and cumin. What a great combination. Yes, well, that, that um, it's with a little bit of paprika, some cumin, a little bit of minced onion um, and the orange, orange zest. Um, and a little bit of oregano, and then we—it's a shoulder boned that we just slow roast for a couple of hours in, in the oven, so it sort of goes to that sort of second stage, and and so it's really sort of tender and melting. The meat is melting, um, and then the the sauce and the marinade um, just sort of thickens as it cooks, and it's a lovely fragrant, a slightly spiced, tangy sauce, <laughs> stroke gravy on the side so absolutely wonderful 25 years of morrow what will morrow be in another mm. 25 years what place will it have in british food history <laughs> i mean what's great we always say you know at the restaurant you're only as good as your last meal so customers are the first to know if the food drops in quality and if it doesn't have that same panache that same zest um so that is very much you know about you know, the individuals, myself, Samantha, the training, our chefs, and all of that sort of thing. But, I mean, what's great is the books do survive and the books continue and they're very, much, they're very loved and they're very used. And, um, and so the legacy of the books probably will be greater than the restaurant because of the fact that a restaurant's only as good as your last meal. So I think, you know, that's a wonderful thing about the books is that they always hopefully will inspire and you know keep their memory of um, morrow going thanks for listening you can read the transcripts at jillysmith.com where you can also sign up to my newsletter and you can follow me on instagram i'm at food jilly smith and that's where you'll find all my adventures in cookery with lease online check the show notes and on instagram for full details of how to get cooking the books discounts on lease essential cookery course i'll see you next week